0: Good morning. So this will be a test. I will uh, put the first exhibit on the screen. And the test is, would you like to eat this? Or let's see exhibit B, or this? Now be honest. Now, which one should you eat? I think we all agree with that part. You know, we may disagree about what we want to eat, but I think we all know what we should be feeding on, and that applies to today's message. Uh, if you remember, in a uh, passage last week, we ended in Colossians uh, chapter two, verses uh, eight through ten. Paul said, uh, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And what he was talking about were some false teachers that have come to Colossae, and they were beginning to bring new doctrines, right? You had the original doctrines that the apostles brought, they taught people about Jesus, and now there's newcomers came, and they had some additional things to teach them. And these things looked good, right? It says it was uh, through philosophy, love of wisdom. Who loves wisdom? I do. Who wants to appear wise? I do. All right? According to uh, the traditions of men. Who wants to be consistent with what the forefathers have done, and wants to follow the same traditions? I mean, generally we do, right? We want to you know, establish that what we're doing is true now by looking at previous generations and assure ourselves, yes, that's what they've always done. So we can do the same today and be sure we're on the right path. Right? That's what they were teaching. Do the same things we've done in the past. And uh, according to the basic principles of this world, who doesn't like to fit in? I like to fit in. <laughs> right? With everybody. That's the new doctrines that were brought to them. They looked good. Right, like the donut you saw at the beginning. That's what I want. Right, but then Paul says, and not according to Christ. Right, but the problem was, this wasn't consistent with what they've been taught about the Lord Jesus. And today, Paul will, uh, if you would, try to help us do what my doctor does when I go to my doctor, and my doctor checks my you know, my blood and other vital signs and telling me that I'm not eating the right foods, you know, the doctor will point out the value of eating nutritious, good foods. You need to eat more vegetables and fruit and fish and other things that are good for you, right? The doctor convinces me, look, I'll explain to you what these foods are doing to your body, right? In a similar way, Paul will try to help us see the value of Christ, right? As opposed to these new doctrines that were being brought to them. Okay? So we'll start with that. Verse 11 in Colossians says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So that's that's a mouthful, right? But this this kind of if you would a densely packed section in this book of trying to help us understand the uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ, all the treasures that are, are ours in Christ. So we'll spend some time trying to tear it apart and, and see what's in here and digest what we can. We'll leave the bones for later. Um, okay, so first one in him you also circumcised. So a circumcision as most of you are familiar, is a rite that uh, God gave the Jews. He told uh, Abraham, this will be a mark of my covenant with you. And they circumcised the sons, and that was, if you would, some evidence in the flesh that they were God's people. The problem was that you could circumcise a person physically and the person may not be right with God. Right? Is that possible? Could you be physically circumcised? And still not be right with God. Yeah. And in fact, that is the history of Israel. As you read through the Old Testament, these are God's people, but you know they're, they're idolaters, they're murderers, they're doing all these terrible things, and God is judging them for their sins. So even though they had a mark of being God's people, there was a serious problem. And several times in the Old Testament, God talks about the circumcision of the heart and says, you guys, you know, you have the circumcision of the flesh, but you're missing the circumcision of the heart. There's something in your heart that is wrong. And that uh, one verse we, we studied it in the book of Deuteronomy not too long ago. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to give the Lord your God to sorry, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So there God was talking about circumcising the heart, right? which is what they really needed to be able to love God. They needed the heart operation. Now, this is an operation that no human hand can do. And uh, that's why Paul says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What that tells us is that Jesus made it possible for us to love God. Right? It's something the law... And physical circumcision could not do for Israel. Right? And remember, this is what Paul is dealing with. There's this teaching of these false teachers coming in. And then there's the truth in Christ. And, and he's praying to them, look, you guys have something better. Yes, they have the circumcision in the flesh. But that's not going to help you know God and love God. The, the true circumcision, what you really want, is what Jesus has given you. He's taken away from your heart. Whatever it was that prevented you from loving God. So now you could really love God. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that better than physical circumcision? Right? a heart that can love God. Second thing he, uh, it, this goes into is uh, buried with him in baptism. Now this can be confusing because there's at least three different baptisms in the Bible. But uh, to kind of start, start with that historically, the first place we have clear teaching about baptism is uh, the baptism of John. Now, it was probably somewhat of a carryover from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were certain washings you could go through. If you did certain things that made you unclean, you would go and, and be washed with water as part of the ceremony of making you clean and able to enter into fellowship with God's people. But in the case of John the Baptist, it became a lot clearer, and he, he preached what we call a, a baptism of repentance. Right? You people have sinned against God. You've lived a life contrary to the will of God. God wants you to turn from that sin and now live for Him, right? And as a sign that you're serious about your desire to live for God, be baptized, right? So the baptism was a sign that I want to change the course of my life. A baptism of repentance. It's as if, in the picture, my old life has come to an end. I sunk under the water, And now I'm going to live a new life. Right? Isn't that a beautiful picture? The problem is it was just a picture. Right? Could I be baptized? Can I immerse myself underwater and come up again? And live the same old life I lived before? It's possible. Right? Now in Christ, we have another baptism that is talked about here. And that is that we're actually buried with Christ. And um, this is a teaching that... that, uh, Romans uh, gets into in a lot more detail. I see I didn't write down the verse, but uh, basically we're told that we're placed into Christ, and when Christ was buried, we were buried with him. And when Christ arose, we arose with him. And in that transaction, my old nature, if you would, was killed or crucified. And I've received a new nature from God. So now it's not just that I was baptized in water and I'm coming up and saying I want to live a new life. Something happened to change me. I have a new nature that loves the things of God. It's not just that you know, I want to live for God. I can live for God because I have this new nature that God has put inside of me. And that was the result of being baptized in Christ. The Lord Jesus died. He really died. He rose again. He received a new life. And in Christ, I have this new life. I have received a new nature, right? It's, <clears throat> I think it's something difficult to understand. But it's an experience every believer has, right? That my life changed. When, when uh, Christ came into my life, my life became different. All of a sudden, I had a love for the things of God. I've never had a love for the things of God before, right? It's something that changed when I got saved. It's this new nature that God created in his own image. It's something you have in Christ. You don't have it in the Old Testament. Now, God could have been doing things like that in the Old Testament, but in the law, in the teaching of these false teachers, this didn't exist. They talked about external things, not about the inward reality that Christ was bringing uh, to them. Okay. Next we have and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him. Uh, we'll stop there. So again, there's kind of a difference here. He's talking about the uncircumcision of your flesh, the Gentiles. There's a, If you would, a bit of a contrast between the relationship Israel had with God in the Old Testament and the relationship that Christ was making for Gentiles and Jews, praise God, to come into a relationship with God through him, right? When it says being made alive with him, he talks about, about a relationship with God. That's what it means. Jesus said in uh, 1 John 17, uh, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and you have sent. To know God is eternal life, right? Being made alive is being made alive for God. We, we were alive previously in the flesh, right? I was breathing, walking, and all of that, but I had no relationship with God. And now in Christ, I've been given a relationship with God. Now, this continues with uh, free having, right? So we're, we're told that uh, we're made alive together with him. If we just kind of skip through the next couple of verses, he says, having forgiven you all trespasses." having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. So are uh, three things that I see in this passage that Christ has given us as part of this new life or relationship with God, which was different from what Israel had. Right. So we're talking about Christ has brought us into a relationship with himself, and he's given us this new things that these uh, false teachers are never offering. Okay, the first one, it says, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now it says this in Hebrews 10, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. So this is talking about the Old Testament and how they had the priestly system there. And you could go if you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you could come to the priest and the priest would sacrifice an animal for you, right? And um, he is daily, right? He's is repeatedly <laughs> offering sacrifice for sin. Why? Because we keep sinning, right? He keeps having to do it, right? But it, it adds and says, which can never take away sins. None of these things ever succeeded in removing a single sin, right? All the Old Testament um, rites that they did Uh, The sacrificing of animals never really took away anybody's uh, sin, but this man, pointing to Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So first thing, we finally have something that really works. Right? All the sacrifice of animals didn't work. It didn't really um, forgive anybody's sins. Nobody, no, nobody's sins were completely blotted out by the offering of an animal. Uh, well, now we have something that does, right? Christ offering his own body for us, him suffering on the cross. Finally, there's something that God could use to take away our sins, right? We, we deserve to die for our sins. The soul of that sins shall die will. Christ died on the cross for our sins. A perfect man, able to take the place of a man, not an animal, but also God, and therefore able to take the sins of all men, really all sins. That's what I want to think about. We were talking about it a little bit this morning, you know, trying to think of everything we've been forgiven by Christ. And uh, I tried doing a little bit of math about how many sins it is that Christ forgiven. And I'll start with just me. Because that's the most important thing <laughs> for me. And, you know, let's say on the average day, I seen 10 times, right? I don't know if I'm being, you know, overly critical or overly generous with myself, but I think that's, that's a reasonable, you know, first assumption. Um, 10 times, well, you know, there are 365 days in the year, all right? So I have to multiply 10 by 365. Now, maybe I'll live to be 70 years old. Alright, so you have to multiply it by saying so if I do that, I will sin in my lifetime about a quarter of a million times. All right? All of that Christ has paid for. Right, now let's say I'm not the only person that's important. There's you guys too, but you know, let's not just be selfish here. And let's acknowledge scripture said Christ has died for all men. Alright, well, right now. There's about 7 billion people on the face of the earth. I think it's a little bit more than that. But we'll start with 7 billion. Well, 7 billion times about a quarter of a billion. Sorry, a quarter of a million, right, Sims per person. Uh, so I did the math, and I, I came up to uh, 1 quintillion, if that's the right word, 788 trillion 500 billion sims. And that's just for the people who are alive today. You know, and think of that, you know, it's said in that verse, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Isn't that amazing? All of those sins taken away. One offering. Okay, so that was the first having. The second having, second thing that Christ did, which was new, wasn't there in the Old Testament, He says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is talking about the law. And uh, there's a parallel passage for it in uh, Romans chapter 7. Verse 4 says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. What Jesus did is he changed our relationship to the law. So the word wiped out, the idea of just wiping out the law as if, as if he, he got rid of the law. Now we have to be careful in how we deal with this because the Bible tells us, Romans, the same passage we're reading from, tells us that the law is good. The law of God is good. God is good. His law reflects his character. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. The problem is in me. I can't keep the law of God. And if my relationship to God will be based on the law of God, even after I've been saved and I have a new nature and my old nature has been dealt a disabling blow, I still cannot live by the law of God. Right? If that was the condition of my relationship with God, is how well I keep the law, you know, I would you know, not last very long as a Christian. And so Christ took away the law... And he says the way he did it is we have become dead to the law. Right? That's the real way. When Christ died, remember we talked about that as a part of a, one of the baptisms, we're placed into Christ. When Christ died, <coughs> he died in my place. And the law of God looks sees me as having died in Christ and it says, you know, I'm done with Noah. Right, now let's say this, Tom, You know, you caught me committing some infraction, I'm sure it was minor, but uh, I did something wrong, and uh, you write me a ticket. And, uh, you know, the next day, you know, sad to report, I pass away. And uh, somebody, you know, will, uh, you know, you will come and, uh, you know, try to collect on your ticket, and then you'll find out that I'm dead. What are you going to do with that ticket? (laughs) <laughs> right, it's, it just no longer applies, right? You know, as far as, as the law of California is concerned, Noah is no longer something to worry about, right? <laughs> you know, we've, we, just, he's, he's no longer in the books. In the same way, because you have died in Christ, you're no longer in the books, right? I mean, the law of God it says, Tom Rodriguez is dead. We don't have to worry about him anymore, right? I mean, you don't have to do anything about it. And because of that, the law of God doesn't apply to me anymore, right? I don't have to worry about what the law of God says. Now, it doesn't mean that I can, you know, I go out and I do whatever I want because it says, therefore, my brethren, you also become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. There's a new relationship. And to who? To to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. I have now a relationship with I don't have to worry about the law. All I need to do is obey Christ, right? And uh, the wonderful thing of that is, unlike the law, if you look at verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Christ works from the inside. He changes me. He gives me a desire to do his will. He makes known to me his will. But it's not from the letter. It's not from above this list of do's and don'ts. He leads me toward his will. And he enables me to do his will. It's a new rela- something Israel never had. We have now in Christ. And uh, the third thing, the third having that I mentioned, he says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, in it, And this is something you wouldn't find in Romans. You'd find it in places like the book of Hebrews, for example. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Uh, In the case of Israel, they always had to worry about being separated from God. Right? Because the relationship to God was based on the law. When they as a nation stopped following God, God would judge them as a nation. And uh, the, the person who's really behind our separation from God is the devil. Right? He was there from the beginning. He's the one who led Adam and Eve to sin against God, and that broke their relationship with God. And now we're told that Jesus has disarmed the devil. What does it mean that he's disarmed? Well, the ultimate goal of the devil was to separate me from God. And the way the devil separates me from God is by getting me to sin against God. But because Jesus paid for all of my sins, he can no longer separate me from God. I'm united with God forever because Jesus has dealt with that. Now, it's amazing how great that victory is as you look at this uh, passage. Uh, It says that he he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them uh, in it. I think it's borrowing from the imagery of what they would do in ancient Rome when uh, the Romans would conquer a new nation after they finished fighting against their enemies, they would uh, disarm them, they took away their weapon, then they would bring them to Rome and parade them throughout, make a public spectacle of them. Look at these guys, we defeated them. And uh, we're so our victory over them is so, conflict we have, is so complete, we have no more fear of them, right? And we, we can let them walk, why? Because we disarmed them, we took away their weapon. In a sense, that's what it says about Uh, the danger we have from Satan, he's been completely disarmed as far as being able to separate us from God. He cannot separate you from God anymore. You're you're connected to Christ forever. Okay. Um, So this was, uh, if you would, the the doctor telling us of the value of our relationship with Christ and how, uh, if you would, nutritious... (laughs) It is. How, how, this is really what we want. We want our relationship with Christ as opposed to what the false teachers were bringing them. And uh, the false teachers, he deals with in the next verses, verse 16 through 19. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God, so first, remember this is the false teaching. <clears throat> uh, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. They were bringing back these Old Testament teachings and saying, "You guys can't eat, you know, pork or shrimps or all these other things that the law says you can't eat, and you need to celebrate these feasts. You know, you need to keep the Passover and." Uh, the Day of Atonement, and all these other Jewish feasts that God has given you, or you're not going to have all the wonderful things God wants you to have. That's, that's, that's the teachings that they were bringing. Now, Paul says these things are a shadow of things to come. All right? So he doesn't say that these things had no value whatsoever, but they were just a shadow of things to come. Now, Christ, he says, is the substance I mentioned before, I'm a, a light-emitting diode engineer, right? So, you know, it's, it's my job to know all things about light. Now, this is something about light you all know. And That if I put a light over here, and I stand over here, what will be over there? A shadow, a shadow right? Now, so there is a reality in God's plan of salvation, and that is Christ is the only reality of salvation that God ever had planned. The Jews didn't have any other salvation other than Christ. But in the Old Testament, that was before Christ, it was as if there was this bright lamp shining, and all these Old Testament feasts and, and laws were a shadow of Christ, meaning they had a picture of Christ. All these offerings that they had to bring to God they were a picture of Christ. They, they were to show them how God would save them. Yes, a sacrifice would be offered on their behalf. Now, the animals themselves will not save them from their sins, but the animals were this shadow or this picture of how one day they will be saved. So these things were good in Old Testament time. Why? Because they pointed them to Christ. And when Christ came, they would recognize, oh, yes, this is God's plan of salvation. This, he, this is what he meant all along right? So it was good. But now we're we're past Christ. Here's Christ. He has come. And we can have a relationship with him. And they're pointing still to these same shadows. And that's why Paul, beware lest anyone cheat you of your reward. What is your reward? Well, Jesus is. Our relationship with Jesus is the reward. That's the wonderful plan that God has had from us from the beginning of the world, the beginning of the universe. That's what he always wanted to us. And yet, there's a risk here, as they were starting to feed us other things, the false teachers, you need to go back and keep all these laws, that these things will cause us to miss Christ himself, because we're so engaged in them. An illustration, I once heard of it, is a a soldier uh, at wartime, he writes his wife love letters, right, and his wife receives the letters, and she enjoys reading them. Right? because they tell her of how much her husband loves her. Right? Well, now the husband comes back home and says, Honey, I'm home. And she says, Not now, honey. I'm reading your letters. <laughs> right? You're missing it. And that's what they were doing. If they would go back to these laws in the Old Testament, they would be missing the reality that is theirs in Christ. And that's what Paul was concerned for. Okay. So first... He exposed the, the false teaching, right? It's, it's not the substance. Go to the substance. Don't go to the shadows. Now he will expose the false teachers themselves. Now, it doesn't sound so nice. He's saying about them that uh, they take delight in false humility and worship of angels. They're intruding into those things uh, which he has not seen. They're vainly puffed up in the fleshly mind. They're not holding to the head. And it sounds like kind of a negative thing, you know. Didn't your mother teach you, Paul, that if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? But uh, Paul is doing something very important here. He is exposing the wolf under the sheep's clothing. Remember, Jesus said that, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He's doing... The Colossians, and ask the favor of peeling off a little bit of the sheep so we can see there's a wolf underneath, really for the protection of the saints. He's not being mean here. He's trying to help the believers out. All right, so the first thing he says, uh, they're taking delight in false uh, humility and uh, sorry, false humility and worship of angels. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what this means. Right? I it seems that they were engaged in some sort of worship of angelic beings. Um, but he's saying that uh, this was false. So the best as I, I, I can guess, I, I know there's, you know, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to say things that condemn our brothers and sisters in Christ. I have a, a brother who is uh, in an Assemblies of God. And uh, I, in the Assemblies of God, there's this thing called speaking in tongues. Right? And you, you can go and, you know, you'll say something that, you know, is unintelligible, right? We wouldn't be able to understand. And, and then the person will say, you know, I spoke in tongues. Everybody gets really excited. This person spoke in tongues. Now, I want to be careful. You know, if God so desired to, he could give someone the gifts of tongues today. I have nothing against it. But this brother of mine, who is himself in the Assemblies of God, says, you know, a lot of times, people do it, and you look at their lives, and it's completely inconsistent with the teaching of the Scripture, right? You know this person couldn't really be um, in the will of the Lord because of the way their life is, right? Gift of tongues, you know, I'm not going to make a judgment of it, but clearly this person is living a life completely contradictory to the Scriptures. And uh, that's my guess of what they were doing. They were coming in and having some sort of an experience, which was false. That's why he says it's a false humility and worship of angels. They were saying, we we're seeing these visions of angels. Uh, you know, we're, you know these, these beings are so great. You know, we're really, uh, you know, enjoying our experience. Right? Something, something of that order. I don't know exactly what it is that they were going through. But it's some sort of an experience that they were claiming to have, which Paul says very plainly it was false. It wasn't true. Whatever it is these people were doing was not true. Uh, second, he says that they were intruding into those things which they had, have not seen. Well, they, they really are angelic beings. We're not denying the fact that there's angelic beings. Paul wasn't denying the fact that they were angels and potentially you know, a person could encounter an angel. I, I think Paul probably encountered angelic beings. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians Where he says he was taking up to the third heaven and he heard things that were, you know, I I think uh, he wasn't allowed to say, right? He probably saw angels, uh, but he knew that these false teachers did not because what they did was inconsistent with true angelic beings. Uh, And we, we know that from places like Revelation, where John actually goes and John actually encountered angels in the book of Revelation and uh, kind of near the end of the book of Revelation after the angel showed him all the things that God will do John is completely overcome and he falls down and worship the angel that was in front of him and telling him those things and this is what the angel said Uh, so this is Revelations 19.10 he says and I fell at his feet to worship him that's what John did but he said to me See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Right? A true angel will not want to be worshipped. Now, a false angel, maybe. Right? I mean, I'm sure Satan would love to be worshipped. But a true angel will not want to be worshipped. So if you have an experience with a supernatural being, who is not God that wants you to worship him, you know there's a problem, right? And that's why Paul could say they're intruding into those things which they have not seen. I don't know what these false teachers have seen, but I can tell you they haven't seen true angels from what they're telling you about. them. Uh, Third, he's saying that uh, they're vainly puffed up, he's vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. And uh, uh, the point there is this person is, is perhaps claiming to be humble, he's claiming to be spiritual, but he's he's full of pride. He's sharing this experience with you because he thinks it shows how spiritual it is. You know, I, I saw this vision of angels. Wow, you must be really spiritual. Right? And he's sharing it so so it's self-motivated. He's not these false teachers weren't doing it because they wanted the well-being of the believers. It's because they were seeking the, the crowds. They wanted people to, to follow them. Uh, Paul said this in Acts 20. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. It's selfish. Right? This is the wolf. The wolf doesn't want you. He doesn't care about you. They care about themselves. They want you to think highly of them or you know pay their salaries or whatever it is, right? They want what's yours to be theirs instead of seeking after your own good. That's the difference between a, a true apostle like Paul really wanting the good of the sheep. And the false prophets who really wanted their own good. What do you have that you can give me? (laughs) Right? That's what they were after. And then finally Paul says about them and not holding fast to the head. Meaning they were not following Christ. The true, the false prophets themselves were not following Jesus. In their own lives you'd be able to see they were not following. And that's what Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves, you will know them by their fruit. Their fruit. The evidence of their life. There's going to be a lack of evidence of personal obedience to Christ. It's not about how good a person sounds when he is teaching you. It's about their life. You have to look at their life to know the truth. And the false prophets did not have a testimony of personally following the Lord Jesus in their lives. Okay. <clears throat> now, we just have here uh, one last, the last verse, or the last portion of this verse. It says that they were not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So, Paul is talking here about an increase that is from God. Now, I believe that during this period of time of false prophets have come to Colossae, there was a growth of the church. Now, it wasn't a growth that was from God. It was a growth of the number of people that were probably coming out to the services. And one of the reasons I, I believe that, in the first verse, Paul is writing to them and he says, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ, right? So it wasn't to everybody in the church he was writing to. It was to the faithful brethren. Within the church, there was a church. There were the true believers in the church. But you've probably had a lot of people who came because they liked what these false teachers were preaching, right? They They were preaching philosophy, you know, wisdom. Everybody wants wisdom, Right? They were teaching things according to the traditions of this world. That sounds good. They were teaching things uh, you know, according to the basic principles of this world. That sounds good. I, I think there was growth in the church during that time. But it wasn't a growth according to God. I uh, recently read about a man named Robert H. Schuller. Some of you probably know about him more than I did. I, I didn't know very much about him. So I heard his name in the past, but he passed away a few weeks ago while I was in Los Angeles. And so they had a big article about him in the LA Times. I don't get a newspaper in my own house, but my parents were getting a newspaper, so I read about this guy. And uh, they, this is a secular newspaper, so you have to be a little bit careful how you read it, especially when he talks about a professing Christian. But from what I understand reading about him, uh, he uh, came perhaps from a conservative background, but he found that uh, if he would, would preach a positive message, people will come out to the church meetings. Right? And uh, he uh, went as far as sending out a survey to the local neighborhood What would you like to hear at church? And, uh, and so he preached you know, popular messages. And uh, his church grew. And it grew. And it grew. And uh, he, uh, uh, for a time, he had the biggest church in the world, right? Uh, He built what's uh, been called the Crystal Cathedral, right? Multi million dollar church building. And uh, as you kept reading, you found that all of that fell away, right? The the whole thing went bankrupt. Right now, a Catholic church actually owns you know the ground because the whole thing felt it wasn't from God right what kind of growth do we want to have in our church now we want growth and this passage teaches that God wants growth right it says from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase That is from God. I believe God God wants his church to grow. Now, we have to be a little bit careful. There are two kinds of growth, right? There's growth in the number of people, and we would love to see that. We'd love to see more people come out, you know, join the fellowship of the saints, be saved if they're not saved, uh, become part of the body. Uh, There's also the growth in the Lord, right? Each individual person here can grow in the relationship with Christ and get to know him better and be more conformed. To the image of Christ. So they are both growth. We don't want to emphasize one over the other. And yet, what is the key for a growth that is a growth in God? Well, the key is the head, right? Staying attached to the head. And uh, the image here is that of a human body. And uh, the other key, so two keys, staying attached to the head and then staying attached to the rest of the body, right? Because it talks about being knit together by joint and ligament. That's you guys, by the way. <laughs> joints and ligaments, okay? And as am I. Joints and ligaments. Staying connected. And uh, the image is that of a human body, you know. And I see a child. I've hop- hopefully reached my mature size. I'm not expecting to grow anymore. I'm hoping not to grow anymore because I know it's not going to be in the right direction. But, uh, you know, a child will grow. But what does a child need to do to grow? Well, first of all, You know, your eye will have to kind of look down at the plate, right? And see the food, right? What makes it do it? It obeys the head, right? The head tells the eye, look down. The eye looks down, it sees the food. And then, in response to the information provided by the eye, the head tells the arm, okay, reach down and take the food. And if you're skilled enough to do so, you may use a fork, (laughs) okay? Okay? Okay, and then, you know, okay, um, now bring the food to the mouth. Mouth open. Every member of the body has to obey the head or the body is not going to grow. And the members of the body need to learn to work together. And that's, that's the only key for growth, which is the growth of God. First, each of us, Has to personally obey the Lord Jesus, right? We have to obey the head. And second, we have to learn to work together. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that there is in your Son a uh, true access to God. We are truly made alive in Him. And if there's anybody here who has not been made alive in you and hasn't come to experience that relationship, Lord, we pray for them that uh, they might uh, uh, come into that relationship with you, submit the need to Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. And for the rest of us, Lord, how we yearn for that growth that you speak of in your word. We know that growth comes from obedience to you and working together with one another. Lord, we ask that you will indeed need us together, give us one heart for the things of God and bring growth to, to this local body.